Welcome to the ESG Academy, where the Hogan Lovells team quickly but thoroughly shares critical insights on key ESG issues that in-house counsel need to know. Today's episode is about climate change, a big topic to tackle in a short amount of time. But your hosts, Amy Romer and Carl Pernbacher, will hit the highlights you need to know. Amy, resident in our Washington DC office, is the head of our energy regulatory group and is known for spearheading many first-of-its-kind cutting-edge energy projects. She has also been honoured by the National Law Journal as a great mind impacting the crucial intersection of energy production and the environment. Karl, from Munich, is the head of our international arbitration team in Germany and has particular experience relating to disputes in the energy space. With climate change top of the world's agenda, this conversation should be fascinating. Hey, Carl, how are you? Good to be with you here today. Amy, great to talk to you. Can you help me by setting the scene regarding climate change? What are the most urgent topics clients are currently coming with to you? Thanks, Carl. So I'm an energy attorney, and so the climate change connections are pretty clear. You know, electricity produces carbon emissions, and you need to decarbonize the electric sector, which makes about a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions. And so the clients coming to me um, are talking to me, not just how do I decarbonize my portfolio of power generation sources, but what are the other factors that I need to take into consideration, including um, what my customers want, uh, what my owners want, um, and what are the various policies that are going to impact this decision. And there's a large discussion that's emerging around the clean energy transition needing to be a just energy transition and the impact that a transition away from um, traditional hydrocarbons like coal and gas have on the communities that are being impacted, as well as how the energy transition affects countries that um, already have a significant energy deficiency, which is a lot of Sub-Saharan Africa uh, and Southeast Asia as well. So that's that's where a lot of my conversations are focusing focusing on. But one of the things that's really surprising to me and that I'm seeing increasingly is people outside the energy sector coming into the energy sector to figure out um, where their power is coming from and whether it's clean or not. Um, so I think what we're going to see is that there, the bright line between whether I'm a carbon emitter, uh, you know, usually it's the energy, transportation, agriculture, and industrial sectors are the big carbon emitters. But companies that are outside that field are increasingly being forced to consider where they're getting um, the carbon footprint of their businesses. And so we're going to see that it's not just a matter of, um, you know, do I produce greenhouse gases, but does the life cycle of my business produce greenhouse gases? And there's going to be a lot of global policies, stakeholder demands, and other business considerations that are going to blend into the day-to-day operational decisions that companies are going to have to make. Um, And maybe that transitions well over into what you're doing because you're on the litigation side of things. So how um, is the EU-based litigation related to climate change evolving and what are the implications for um, businesses? Well, first of all, I think as all over the world, also in Europe since, maybe since very few years, the environmental concerns have gained a new quality. It's now a hard factor which needs to be dealt with by companies. This is due to a new awareness of the urgency and the significance of these topics, also to new legislation, but also to new policies and objectives which companies have fixed for themselves. 
on the legislatory level, for example, on the level of the European Union, the European climate law rights into law, the goals set into the European Green Deal by setting a legally binding target for the European institutions and the member states of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. You have similar laws and regulations on national level. And then that's where your question uh, has come from, uh, comes litigation. For example, Germany has adapted last year a federal climate change act, which this year it had to change after the federal constitutional court ruled it to be against uh, unlawful against the German constitution as it considered that it allowed that the goals set until 2030 were incompatible with the fundamental rights basically of future generations because it put too much burden on the time after 2030. Another example is, for example, that in 2019, the Dutch government has been condemned by the highest court in Den Haag to comply with climate targets. You have mentioned politics, and we had recently the election, the federal elections in Germany, and the campaign, and obviously decarbonization, and you mentioned also the social effects and the economic effects on, on entire regions and federal states were heavily debated. However, it's not just about politics or regulatory instruments. We see that in the increasingly individuals and companies uh, become the target of the question of their liability for carbon emissions. For example, we have uh, currently a case pending before a German district court brought against a multinational utility 2015 by a Peruvian farmer who argues that the German company is liable for a share of costs of installing flood defenses to address the uh, threats posed by global warming by a lake near his home. These new cases raise raises a whole series of questions of procedural but also of substantial law. What is unique in these uh, kind of cases is that they are all of global significance. This means that on the ground that a company has allegedly contributed to climate change through its emissions, lawsuits can be brought practically in any country around the globe and under any applicable law. And such potential judgments cannot be ignored since, first of all, they might be enforceable in other jurisdictions in the country where they have been issued. And second, most of these globally acting countries have, of course, assets all over the world. And we see that politics uh, have tendency to empower more and more entities and stakeholders like NGOs or trade unions, which will be able to initiate such actions against companies on behalf of any aggrieved parties, which will increasingly foster climate change litigation. And what, at least from the European or German perspective, might change, in the past we have seen, or my impression was, that it is a speciality of the US system that changes in policy can be triggered through the judiciary. And I have in mind, for example, the, the huge tobacco litigation with all its effect on politics and policies. Whereas in Europe, policies mainly change through politics and through government regulation. This might change 
in the field of climate change. This is, is it's not, uh, it's maybe the most global uh, topic. And therefore, I expect that also for European companies and for German companies, the judiciary will shape uh, the future and have a huge impact and influence on the entire strategy of companies. And this is something which is completely new. We have seen now the beginning, but I would expect that we will see a lot of litigation and, and the liability risk for companies will increase dramatically, which will have an impact on where you are advising, I think, on the medium and long-term strategies of companies. And you mentioned uh, first, when I asked you, what are they coming currently uh, with? What are, what are the topics you see on the medium and long-term horizon? So I think, Carl, um, thank you. And that was all really, really informational. And you know, the, the information that you provide on the litigation side helps me figure out what do I provide for advice on the, the front end strategy side. So thank you for that. Um, you know, I think what companies are going to have to ask themselves, and again, this gets increasingly complex the more you dig into it. But up front, I think companies are going to have to ask themselves, you know, basically three questions. First, what are my direct carbon emissions? Second, what are my indirect carbon emissions? And third, what can I do about it? And so a company that's in the energy sector is going to have to evaluate carbon emissions. If it's a nuclear power plant or wind and solar, those are carbon-free power generation sources. But the front end cycle that goes into the mining, the materials that are used uh, in these facilities and um, constructing them have uh, have a carbon profile and those need to be evaluated. So that's the, what are my indirect carbon emissions? And every industry is gonna have to look at that. Um, even uh, Hogan Levels as a law firm has looked into that. We looked at our power generation and how we can decarbonize putting solar panels on the rooftop, uh, energy efficiency, reducing our energy footprint. Um, so we're consuming less. A whole host of things. Companies that are in the clothing sector or the food sector are going to have to look at where am I getting my raw materials and what are the carbon footprint of the process to manufacture those raw materials. Um, and if I'm uh, making Pop-Tarts in the United States, but I need strawberries flown in from Peru, it's what is the carbon footprint of, of those strawberries and bringing those in. The Biggest carbon emitting sources are agriculture, transportation, um, uh, electricity, and industrial. And very few companies don't touch upon one of those four sectors, whether directly or indirectly. And every company has a carbon footprint. And they're going to have to start looking at it and figuring out, you know, what do I know about my carbon footprint and what information can I gather about that? Um, it's going to be demanded by owners, it's going to be demanded by customers, and it's going to be demanded by um, stakeholders, other stakeholders, such as governments um, uh, or the judiciary, right? As you just pointed out, Carl, you know, there's a lot of different angles that can impact how a business actually operates and the responsibilities that they have and companies can get out and be in front of that. And I think maybe I'll end with we need to think unconventionally. One of the things that I continue to see, uh, and at first I was surprised about, and then I, I'm relieved to see because this is what we need, is a lot of uh, strange marriages uh, in the business sector where we're seeing um, a data center. In the United States, a data center is con being constructed at a nuclear power plant. It's a highly energy intensive uh, industry data centers. It's something that's critical for running our modern economy. Um, but it needs carbon-free power generation sources. And so it's the first of a kind type facility locating another type of business at a nuclear power plant, which is carbon-free. 
Um, when I first heard about that, I was really surprised. But now, you know, when you think about it, it really makes sense. Um, we're seeing data centers also look at, you know, entering into power purchase agreements or other type of arrangements with not only technologies, carbon-free technologies that exist today, but carbon-free technologies that may exist in the future, like they don't even exist now. That's pretty remarkable. Bitcoin is another technology that we see teaming with carbon-free um, power sources where they're looking at um, actually building a, a carbon-free power generation source uh, co-located with a, a Bitcoin um, mining facility because it's also energy intensive. And so I think continuing to think about these strange marriages and these unconventional ways of teaming energy consumers or um, uh, traditional carbon emitting sources with um, the ones that would consume that, I think is uh, is what we need to do in order to address this very complex uh, issue of climate change across the board. Um, and I think with that, Carl, do you have any other thoughts on what companies should be thinking about from your end? Coming back to the litigation, I agree with you, of course, the first is, is the assessment of the business model uh, of an under carbon uh, emission aspects. The second is, I think, ESG compliance need to be an absolute and uh, important part of the overall compliance programs. And as a third, I would say it's worth looking into the past and the present and to assess whether you have a litigation and liability risk. And uh, with uh, increasing uh, jurisprudence coming out, I think the risk is increasing. And therefore, I would recommend to look into that and then to come up not only with what you described, uh, carbon reduction or avoidance strategy, but also to think about how to minimize the litigation risk, having a communication uh, strategy in place, having the documentation sorted, and really also looking into the past because the way you deal with the past and the present will influence the risk which you might face in future uh, legal uh, battles before courts on a global basis. So I think I'm gonna sum this up and if you have anything to add, let me know. I think the name of the game is how can you help your business? How can you reduce your risk? And how can you help your planet? And everybody has the tools and the ability to do that. They just need to piece it together. I would agree. Thanks a lot, Amy. Thanks, Carl. Great talking to you. Thanks so much to Amy and Carl for today's discussion. Visit hoganlovells.com forward slash ESG for more podcasts, videos and resources or download more episodes from the Apple Podcast app or the Google Podcast app for Android users.